Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. came across a story this week that I'd like to read to you. A husband writes, when our lawnmower broke and wouldn't run, my wife kept hinting to me that I should get it fixed. But somehow I always had something else to take care of first. The truck, the car, golf, always something more important. Finally, she thought of a clever way to get her point across to me. When I arrived home one day, I found her seated in the tall grass, busily snipping away at the grass with a tiny pair of sewing scissors. For a short time, I watched silently. Then I went into the house. I was only gone a minute. When I came out again and handed her, when I came out again, I handed her a toothbrush, and I said to her, When you finish cutting the grass, you might as well sweep the driveway. (laughs) And the story ends with this line. The doctors say I will walk again, but always with a limp. (laughs) Family conflict. Fighting. Emotional cutoffs. Anger. It made me pay attention to something else I ran across this week from the pen and the voice of Richard Swenson. Richard Swenson is a researcher physician who also is a futurist, an educator, an author. Swenson is is talking about these very matters, these, these times when there is conflict and the sparks fly. Is there any way to get through that, any way to reconcile? And Swenson says that our primate friends, the chimpanzees, have the same kind of thing. They will blow up. They will get angry. They will fight and then separate. But what's curious is chimpanzees need to reconcile very quickly, within 10 minutes. In fact, within 10 minutes, if they make eye contact with each other, there is this sense that all is well. But if they don't within 10 minutes... They will never have anything to do with that other chimpanzee the rest of their lives. So if they connect, they'll hang out, they'll play, they'll eat food, they'll pick each other's fleas, all those kinds of things. They're friends again within 10 minutes. And I got to thinking about that. thought, wow, if we were held to that standard, we would have very few people whose fleas we could pick. (laughs) And then I got to thinking about Jacob, thinking about conflict and cutoffs and anger and hopeful reconciliation. Because Jacob certainly knows about conflict, especially family conflict. Twenty years before the point we join him today, he lied to his father in dramatic fashion, had to run away from home. So when he left his father, they appeared to be on speaking terms at least, but you can be sure there was a deep wound in the relationship. His mother 
with whom he had colluded against his father, he would never see again. Sorrow in that relationship. The last time he saw his brother Esau, his brother was in a killing mood and Jacob was in a running mood. That had nothing good to come from it. And then just recently, he has left his uncle Laban, where there has been so much conflict, so much manipulating going on that they have finally just said, enough, we'll draw a boundary, neither one of us will cross it to hurt the other, and just let bygones be bygones. Jacob knows about conflict. That's why it must have been true that when the word came to him, the divine word came to him, go back home, he must have trembled in his sandals because he knew that at the end of that road was Esau. He would have to go home and face Esau. Was Esau still intent on killing him, doing him harm, doing him damage? Was there any way the two of them could talk? Jacob must have wondered those things, asked himself those questions. But he intended to obey God and return home. But God had something for Jacob. God wanted to tell Jacob something that's important for maybe many others to understand. Jacob, you think your problem is Esau. I have something else for you to consider. And so we go to Genesis, Genesis chapter 32. Genesis 32 is where we'll pick up Jacob's story today. But before we begin to read the story, I want to just ask you to remember a couple couple of items as we read. Remember, first of all, we're dealing with Jacob. You remember Jacob. Jacob, who's always maneuvering behind the scenes. Jacob, who's trying to manipulate things. Jacob, who's trying to control things to get the result that he desires. That's Jacob. And you watch what happens today. You ask yourself, is Jacob still up to his old tricks? Is he still doing the same thing? Or is he just doing what he's doing because he's trying to save his neck? Or maybe some of both. The second thing to notice, and it's related to the first is the language, the terminology Jacob uses. When he's talking to Esau, he puts words in Esau's mouth and calls himself your servant, Jacob. And then when he refers to Esau, he says, my Lord, Esau. Some versions will will render it, my master, Esau. Is this indicative of a change in Jacob's heart? Is this part of his ploy to maneuver things to his best advantage? Well, you'll have to decide. But we go to read Genesis chapter 32, beginning in verse 1. Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, This is the camp of God. So he named that place Mahanaim. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, This is what you are to say to my lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I'm sending this message to my lord that I may find favor in your eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. 
In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one company, the group that is left may escape. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to the country, your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I've become two camps. Save me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I'm afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. He spent the night there. And from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls, and 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself, and said to his servants, Go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. He instructed the one in the lead. When my brother Esau meets you and asks, Who do you belong to and where are you going and who owns all these animals in front of you? Then you are to say, They belong to your servant, Jacob. They're a gift to my lord Esau, and he is coming behind us. He also instructed the second, the third, and all the others who followed the herds, You are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure to say, Your servant, Jacob, is behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I am sending on ahead. Later, when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. Is Jacob being true to form? He gets the word, go home. And so he obeys. He sets out on his journey back. But he realizes, I can't just show up. And so he gets some servants together, and he says, Go tell Esau that I'm coming, and tell him that I'm coming with a large family, and I'm coming with great wealth. Just tell him that. And so they go. They return. Did you find him? We found him. Did you tell him? We told him. What did he say? He said, I'm coming out to meet Jacob. Oh, good. And he's bringing 400 men with him. What? Four hundred? And Jacob goes into an absolute panic. The language underlines the stark fear that grips him. What is going on? He's finally going to get me. He's going to do me in. And so Jacob goes into damage control mode. He's used to negotiating and working behind the scenes and maneuvering things to his advantage. So he begins. He divides his family and his possessions, his flocks and herds, in two. His apparent thinking is, I have become so big that if Esau finds one and kills them all off, he'll likely think that's all my family. It's so big. And the other ones can then escape. And then he does something that he has not done. If you've been following his story up to this point, he does something he hasn't done before. He prays. He prays. I'm not quite sure how to read the prayer. If you read just the words, divorce them from their context, 
It's a prayer of great humility and petition. God, I'm doing what you've asked me to do. I'm following your word. I'm obeying you. Everything I have, everything I see around me, it's all due to you. You gave it to me. I was nothing. Now I've become a great person. That's true. It's all due to you. But God, Esau's coming and 400 men. So I'm entreating you, please, have compassion, have mercy, save me. Please fulfill your promise to give my progeny, my, my children after me, uh, uh, as many as the sand on the seashore. Please, same thing you promised Grandfather Abraham, Father Isaac. Amen. That's one way to read it, and that may be the right way. Or you might put it into its context. This is Jacob. It could just be that Jacob is saying, God, I'm headed back there because you told me to. I'm doing what you told me to do. I understand all this here that I have, everything that's threatened, it came to me because of your grace and compassion, and I'm thankful for it. So protect it. Please, you know my brother Esau, he's coming after me, but God, you had better fulfill your promise. You promised that we would have descendants. To have descendants, i got to have kids. You better fulfill your promise and protect us. You could read it that way as well. Or maybe there's a mixture of both in there. But at least at this point in his life, Jacob is now praying. But he's not done trying to work the angles. Because as soon as he says amen, he springs into action. He says, okay, here's how I'm going to handle it. Here's what I'm going to do. This will get me through this, hopefully. So he starts dividing up large numbers that would have been worth a great deal of money compared to some of the tribute that was paid from one kingdom to another. Jacob's is bigger than some even of those. He divides them up. He gets the servants, and he says, okay, here's what I want you to do. You go one at a time. Keep some space between you because I want to be coming after Esau with one blow of kindness after another, one blow of abundance after another. And when you get there, be sure you say, your servant, Jacob, sent these to my Lord Esau. And then he repeats that. He says, now be sure you say that. He's working the angles. Got to get everything lined up for a good outcome. You know what it's like. It's like the late teenage boy who calls home frantically one night, Dad, we were leaving the game. We got attacked. They beat us up. They took our wallets, followed us to the car, bashed in the windshield, slit the tires. It's awful. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. Dad, by the way, everything I just said is not true, but we're a half hour late for curfew. It's like, I'm going to work the angles. I got to get what I need on the other end of this. That's Jacob. He thinks, he thinks his problem is Esau. And he's worked everything out now so that he can deal with that problem. The difficulty is that God is thinking about Jacob. Jacob, Esau is not your problem. There's a different problem you need to face. And that problem is called Jacob. 
Now, before we delve into that part of the passage, I'd like to read something to you. So the passage we're going to read is the passage of Jacob's wrestling. But before we read that passage, I want you to get a few little hints along the way that were very helpful to me, maybe helpful to you as well in thinking about it. So these are drawn from a unique kind of a commentary series. United Bible Societies has a commentary series that was written for those who are translating Scripture from the original language into other languages, sometimes new languages. And they've written the commentary to try to give insights to words and to phrases and to passages about the nuances they may want to bear in mind as they translate. So just a few of those here on the passage we're about to read. So first of all, regarding the word wrestled in the text... The particular Hebrew word is used only here and in the next verse. It is related to a word for dust, get dusty, as two people do when wrestling on the ground. There's also a play on words between he wrestled, Yabok, Jabok, Yabok, and Jacob, Jacob. In fact, there are many plays on words in this passage. Next line, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob. Did not prevail means that he could not beat Jacob, could not throw him down. Jacob's opponent was unable to defeat him by using ordinary wrestling methods. And in order to escape before dawn, he threw Jacob's hip out of joint. He touched the hollow of his thigh, is is the line. The verb rendered touched may also mean to strike or hit. Hollow refers to the hip socket. It is clear to say, for example, he hit him on the hip and then put out of joint, means the thigh bone was pulled loose from the hip socket. Let me go for the day is breaking. Realizing he is wrestling with a godlike person, Jacob tightens his grips on his opponent. Instead of letting go, he tightens his grip. And then I will not let you go unless. This is a strong negative response. So it is appropriate in some languages to begin with no. The translation of unless also requires a restructuring of the sentence in some languages. Two examples of possible translations are, no way, first you give me a blessing and then I will let you go, or no, you are a powerful one, you must bless me first. So with those thoughts in mind, let's go now to the reading of the passage. Jacob, working behind the scenes, working the angles, because Esau is his problem. Genesis 32, 22. That night Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Remember, cheat. But he replied, The man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with human beings and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. 
So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon that is attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. It's a mysterious passage. Maybe one of the more challenging passages of Scripture to understand. Where did the man come from? Did Jacob think at first he was one of Esau's men? How could one be locked in that kind of wrestling match with a supernatural being? There's much mystery, maybe intentional. But the biggest question is, who was the man? The text just says, a man wrestled with him. Who was he? Well, most are agreed that it was either God himself or the angel of Yahweh. That's a term that is used here in Genesis and in other Old Testament passages to speak of God's very close and very powerful agent. The angel of Yahweh or God. Certainly this is supernatural in nature from the point perspective of the passage. A number of things underline that. One, the man changed Jacob's name. You'll no longer be called cheat. You'll be called one who struggled, wrestled with God and humans and overcame. In other words, not cheat, but conqueror. Changed his name. Only a superior could do that. Secondly, he did say you have wrestled with God and human beings. Supernatural. Thirdly, Jacob himself, as he walked away from this place, named it, and he said, that's Peniel right there because I want to name it for the fact that I was in such close contact with God, so I will name it Face of God. And then you notice, then you notice, that the translators, at least of the TNIV, gave a name to this section, and the name that they gave it was Jacob Wrestles with God. God or God's agent, still essentially God, and Jacob wrestles. Apparently the picture we are to draw is in the dirt, in the dust, getting sweaty, getting grimy, kicking up dust as they wrestle, each trying to throw the other, and yet this man, Jacob, turns out to be extremely strong. Comes the moment in time as they've been wrestling throughout the night when the man says, let me go, I've got to go. And Jacob realizes there is something more about this than meets the eye, especially when he is struck on the hip and his hip is apparently dislocated. And then he grabs on. Instead of releasing, he grabs on for dear life and he says, I will not let you go. Not until... You bless me. It's an amazing scene. And it's not Esau. 
You see, it appears that God is wanting to say to Jacob, Jacob, you thought your trouble was Esau. You thought your problem was Esau. You thought all the difficulties you're facing are due to someone else out there. I want you to understand, Jacob, that there's something in you that needs to change. Not out there. I still remember. It's been years ago now. Kids were younger. Simple thing we did. We bought a burglar alarm for the house. They came. They installed it. They got done. We felt better about it, better about home, and this will take care of things we were told, and you're hooked up to the monitoring company and the police and all the rest. It's all good. So we were glad. And then it went off. They called us. They called the police. We raced home. We couldn't figure out what had happened. Couldn't find any place where anyone was trying to get in. Who could be doing something at our house? Not long later, went off again. Again, called us, called the police. This happened over and over again until the security company said to us, look, this happens one more time. We're going to start charging you, and the police are probably going to charge you as well. And we were thinking, what in the world is going on? We can't find any evidence of anyone trying to break into our house. And then we saw it. Happened to be there. Our kids had been at a birthday party, brought home some helium balloons that were floating in the entryway. And when the air came on, the balloons moved and set off the motion detector. And the alarm went off. And we thought, all this time, we thought our problem was out there. And lo and behold, our problem is in here. That's what God is telling Jacob as they wrestle in the night. Jacob wrestling. He's wrestled all of his life, wrestled to get his own way, wrestled to get the birthright, wrestled to get the blessing, wrestled to get what he wants from Laban, wrestled, 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 and he's been able to overcome much of it. But in this encounter, he can't win till he reaches desperation, realizing this is God, and he says, I will not let go until you give me your blessing." I don't like that. I honestly don't. Because I like being able to think, there's my problem right there, that person, those people. That's my problem. But in wrestling with God, Jacob is learning. It's not out there. It's in here. That's what needs to change. I will tell you, I don't like having to admit this, but I will tell you that as I look at the span of my life, the times when I have grown the most have been times of real pain, true heartache, deep wrestling with myself and with God. I don't like telling you that because it's just so much easier for it to be Esau than my own heart. But I can tell you of more than a few times 
In our neighborhood, in the early morning, well before dawn, the darkness, walking the streets, thankful for the darkness to cover the tears, just saying, God, please, please, to me it seems so clear, this way. And over the days, slowly coming to a realization that maybe God is saying, it's not out there, Randy. It's not out there. It's in here. Facing that is so hard that that's when I want to hang on and say, then God, if that's the case, then I will not let go until you give me your blessing. I've got to have something, God. Something that will sustain and support. So please bless me. Do you know what's remarkable? What's truly remarkable is that Jacob walks away from this experience limping but whole. He's a whole person with a limp. I read you the words of Old Testament scholar John Hartley writing about that very reality who says this. Because of the blow inflicted during the wrestling bout, after this Jacob walked with a limp. Ironically, having won a blessing from God, Jacob was weakened physically. In gaining position with God, he surrendered standing among people. Every day his limp reminded him that he was to rely on God rather than on his own conniving. Now what comes next is worth paying attention to. Because as Jacob dusts the dust off of himself and as he limps away from the ring, There's Esau. Genesis 33. Remember, there were not chapter and verse divisions, so this would have flowed straight through. He's still dusting off the dust, wiping his brow, limping in pain, and the text says this, 33.1, Jacob looked up, and there was Esau. There is an immediacy about it that is compelling. Jacob looked up, says the text, and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went on ahead and bowed to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Then Esau looked up and saw the women and children. Who are these with you, he asked. Jacob answered, they are the children God has graciously given your servant. Then the female servants and their children approached and bowed down. Next, Leah and her children came and bowed down. Last of all came Joseph and Rachel, and they bowed down. Esau asked, what do you mean by all these flocks and herds I met? To find favor in your eyes, my Lord, he said. But Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. No, please, said Jacob. If I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me, for to see your face is like seeing the face of God now that you have received me favorably. Please accept the present that was brought to you, for God has been gracious to me, and I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. 
Then Esau said, Let's be on our way. I'll accompany you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are tender and that I must care for the ewes and cows that are nursing their young. If they are driven hard just one day, all the animals will die. So let my Lord go on ahead of his servant. And while I move along slowly at the pace of the flocks and herds before me and the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord and see her. Esau said, Then let me leave some of my men with you. But why do that? Jacob asked. Just let me find favor in the eyes of my Lord. So that day Esau started on his way back to Seir. Jacob, however, went to Succoth, where he built a place for himself and made shelters for his livestock. That is why the place is called Succoth. After Jacob came from Paddan Aram, he arrived safely at the city of Shechem and Canaan and camped within sight of the city. For a hundred pieces of silver he brought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. There he set up an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Picture the scene. Jacob bowing repeatedly seven times. Esau running, sweeping him up to his embrace, weeping, kissing, laughing, reunited. And we listen to what they're saying, and we're thinking, what happened to these two? Where are the two brothers we knew? What happened? Because you can imagine some of the conversation. Jacob, when he realizes he's safe, says to Esau, then why did you bring 400 men? And Esau said, because your servants said you had family and wealth, I knew you would need protection. So we came. Who are these two that were ready to kill each other and steal from each other? What has happened? Could it be that God has been working on Esau's heart? We know that God has been working on Jacob's heart. Do you know that after that night wrestling match, if you read the rest of the story of Jacob, you will find that never again does he manipulate and maneuver behind the scenes. He will know great pain, but something changed that night. Something was different. And what grabs me is two scenes that appear here in the text just lying side by side together. One is the scene we saw last week, Jacob and Laban, where there was so much fighting that they finally said, enough already. They drew a boundary, no more. That's something that some in our beloved congregation could do with someone else. Maybe it's an ex-spouse. You've been divorced 10 years, 15 years, still fighting, still using the kids as pawns. It's time to draw a boundary and say, enough already, no more fighting. We'll stop. That's one scene. But today is the second scene. Two who were even more deeply divided than Jacob and Laban had been, who come to true and deep reconciliation. And the question is, why the difference? Because both seem to be blessed by God. There seems to be a divine understanding that sometimes this is as good as it's going to get. But then sometimes something dramatic happens and there's reconciliation. I wondered about that. I can only see one difference. One thing that happened, and that was the night of wrestling with God. 
of realizing my problem isn't out there, my problem is in here. That didn't happen before Jacob and Laban met up. It happened before Jacob and Esau met up. And in that experience, the painful grip of God squeezed Jacob's selfishness into generosity. And that generosity became the soil in which reconciliation grew. Maybe it's time to stop thinking it's Esau. After all, you saw that Jacob named the place Face of God. But then it's when he sees his brother that he says, seeing your face is like seeing the face of God. That's when he truly encounters the deepest realization of God's presence. God's painful grip squeezed Jacob's selfishness into generosity. And that generosity became the soil in which reconciliation grew. The writer Max Lucado tells the story of Daniel. Daniel was a large man, muscle-bound, big, burly, brawny. Became a Christian. Came to follow Jesus. But Daniel brought a story with him, and his story was that he and his brother's brother had had a falling out in the extreme. His brother had swindled him out of a significant amount of money, and Daniel, even after coming to follow Jesus, just couldn't accept it. Daniel said, it was my commitment. If I ever saw him again, I was going to break his neck. I want to read to you from his own words. What happened the day Daniel, walking down a busy street, looked up and down the sidewalk, saw his brother coming his way? Daniel said, I saw him, but he didn't see me. I felt my fist clench and my face get hot. My initial impulse was to grab him around the throat and choke the life out of him. But as I looked into his face, my anger began to melt. For as I saw him... I saw the image of my father. I saw my father's eyes, my father's look, my father's expression. And as I saw my father in his face, my enemy once again became my brother. Lucado comments, that brother found himself wrapped in those big, arm, big arms, but in a hug. The two stood in the middle of a river of people and wept. Daniel's words bear repeating, says Lucado. When I saw the image of my father in his face, my enemy became my brother. Did Daniel say that? Or was that Jacob? Or was that you? Or could that be me? I guess it really doesn't matter which of us says it, because it's true whoever says it. But we only get to that place when the painful grip of God squeezes our selfishness into generosity. It's in that generosity that we find the soil of reconciliation 
gives growth. 